This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. My name's Stan and Adam, two names, um, but I'm, I've been part of the church for um, since the beginning, actually, and um, part of various teams, including part of the preaching team. And I've been given the task of finishing off our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's been a really good series. It's been challenging. It's been thought-provoking. It's been revealing. Uh, but we think we've been served really well by the team. Steve did one, Zach did one, um, Christopher did some, and, and Howard at the bulk of it. So I think we've been served really well, but we're finishing it off today. Now, last week we had Rigby from South Africa come and speak to us. Um, Howard was using the language of him fathering us, and that's certainly what it felt like. He was talking about faith and patience, and to inherit, to walk in the things God has for us, we need both faith and patience. And he talked about how sometimes in our impatience we can get ahead of God. And we can grasp at things, and um, sometimes that's to our detriment. So it was a really good word from him. It did mean, though, that we have missed uh, an instalment in our sermon series. So Howard was meant to do one last week. Um, So we are missing one, but I'm going to fill in a little bit where Howard um, missed missed that. So asking, seeking, knocking. Steve spoke on asking, seeking, and knocking. And after Jesus talks about asking, seeking, knocking, he goes into a series of contrasts. In the sermon, and he talks about the narrow and the wide gate. You know, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, narrow is the gate which leads to life. Then he talks about true and false prophets, and we are to recognize them by their fruits. For a good tree bears good, tree, good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. We're to recognize them by their fruits. Then he talks about true and false disciples, and it's the, the bit where Jesus says, You know, you do things in my name, yet I never knew you. And then he talks about wise and foolish builders, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to read uh, from Matthew uh, 24, uh, 7, 24 to 29, and then I'm going to pray after that before we kick in. It goes. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it's had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Now, this would have been a picture that his readers would have been familiar with. They, they would have been able to picture the, you know, the storm beating against the house. They would have imagined the floods coming down from the mountains into the ravine, and they would have asked, why is that house built on the sand? They would have asked that question. 
And the wise and the foolish builders, you know, they, they have things in common. So they both build a house. They both hear Jesus' words. And they both experience a storm. Yet there's also differences. So one builds his house on the rock and one builds his house on the sand. The former hears the words of Jesus and puts them into practice. The latter hears the words of Jesus. And then the main difference is that of outcome. This is what Jesus wants us to know. For the house built on the rock stood, whereas the one built on the stand fell, and it fell with a great crash. So I'm going to pray now, if you can join me. Yeah. Yeah, Father God, we, we, we love you, Lord. We, we thank you that you have come into our lives, Lord. You, you are part of our lives, Lord God. And uh, let's pray this morning that we will hear your word, Lord. Hear what you are saying to us this morning, Lord, that we will hear the seriousness of what you're saying, Lord. Help me as I speak to convey that seriousness and also to just tell people of the wonder of your gospel, Lord. Help everyone in this room as they hear, Lord, as they listen, Lord. And pray, Lord, that you will be with us this morning, as you already are. Amen. So, have you ever heard, or have you been told to follow your heart? Or have you ever told someone else, you know, follow your heart? Yeah? It's, you probably have, because it's a, it's a common sort of saying these days. Uh, maybe you've heard these ones, you know. You only live once. Um, just do it. Um, I, was out to, I was out at dinner a, a few weeks ago, and someone opposite me on the table had tattooed down their arm the following, live with no regrets. Now, that can be sort of taken in two different spirits. It could be the more cautious approach, but I think it was more along the lines of, you know, it's better to regret something you did than something you didn't do. Maybe you've heard these ones, you do you. Be true to yourself and live your truth. And for many, these statements are, they're instinctive. In this culture, you know, they go to advice. You know, when you're helping someone make a life decision, we can crack out some of these and say, yeah, just follow your heart, you do you. You can say they're harmless as well. You know, so long as they meet a moral standard of not hurting anybody, what's the problem? You know, and to question these, you know, to question these, who are you to question these? And if we're honest, there could be something quite seductive about them. Something which draws in our sins, something about them which just seems inherently right. To question these, you're a bit of a bore. To deny someone else this, you're seen as oppressive. I think I've even used the term be true to yourself before when trying to justify my question in life. When someone questions you, you know, why are you living like this? Why, why aren't you doing what everyone else is doing? It's easy to say, well, you know, I'm just being true to myself because... I kind of know that that will go down better than saying, well, there's something outside of me which, which is, is governing me. Um, because in our culture, it seems wrong to say such things. It seems wrong to say such things. It's what the philosopher Charles Taylor talks about when he talks about the West. Now, I found this in John Mark Comer's new book, uh, We Live, um, Live No Lies. Uh, that's not John Mark Comer. That is, that's Charles Taylor, the philosopher. John McCombe looked significantly younger. Um, but he talks about this, this culture of authenticity. We have moved from a culture of authority to a culture of authenticity, where we no longer live by what external authority structures tell us, but what our internal authentic self 
wants to do. Jonathan Grant, he's an author and a pastor, he sums up this shift. He goes, modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and mortality, morality. The only rule being that it must conform with who we really are. The worst thing we can do is conform to some moral code that is imposed on us from outside by society, our parents, the church, or whoever else. It is deemed to be self-evident that any such imposition would undermine our unique identity. The authentic self believes that personal meaning must be found within ourselves and that must resonate with our one-of-a-kind personality. Now, such statements as I was talking about before, they have a kind of authority in our culture. That they can be the basis by which we can make life decisions. This can be your life. To say that Jesus or the Bible tells me to do something just doesn't go well, damn well, does it? It's true that the self, not God or scripture, is the new locus of authority in Western culture. I mean, so what is the problem with following your heart? Is it good advice? Is it something we can live our lives by? Well, I guess it depends on what the heart wants. As a Christian, um, you know, I I will say things like, you know, God has changed my heart. And I pray that God will change people's heart. And I know that God has changed my heart. And furthermore, you know, God has put things in my heart to do. Yeah, God has put things in my heart. So in one sense, follow your heart is great. But as I sometimes look at myself sometimes, there, there are things in my heart which I might not be too proud of. It's John Calvin, the theologian, 16th century theologian, who wrote in his institute, he says, the heart is a perpetual idol factory. The heart has this ongoing ability to take good things, and not so good things, and make an idol out of them. Uh, now, an idol is something which has a controlling influence on our lives something you spend your energy on, something you spend your passions on, something you base your life around. And we do this maybe because consciously or subconsciously, we believe that they will deliver. They believe that they will deliver happiness, security, or peace. There could be all sorts of idols. In our Western culture, you know, it's, it's that new authority, the authority of self, the authority of authenticity, individual freedom, personal fulfillment. But this can also be mixed in with more traditional values, such as you know, duty, hard work, family, and moral virtue. There's plenty of virtual signaling going on at the moment. But we can look at the key ones, the top three, you know, sex, money, power. You know, they, they immediately come to mind. And we kind of can think of people, you know, leaders or uh, other famous people, you know, that's been their downfall. So, the heart wants what the heart wants. That is actually a quote from Woody Allen. Um, after leaving his wife for her adopted daughter, with whom he had been having an affair. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but he's honest, isn't he? It originated in the heart. The heart wants what the heart wants. And he got what his heart wanted. And you could say, well, he's not hurting anyone. They're both consenting adults. They were both consenting adults, not hurting anyone. I, I wonder what his, his wife was thinking. That kind of gets brushed under the carpet, doesn't it? When I was in Bristol, I had a friend only a few years into a marriage, but his wife was not happy. Uh, no major issues, you know, no, no obvious grounds for 
a divorce, but the advice from the family, her family, was, you've got to do what makes you happy. You've got to do what makes you happy. There was no, no, nothing about working through, nothing about honouring the commitment they made in front of friends and family and God. And it just seems that in our culture, in the matter of sex and romance, what we feel internally trumps everything else. Power and success, another one of the big three. In Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, he includes a story from a tennis player, Chris Evert. Um, she was really successful in the 70s and 80s. She had the best win-loss record of any player. When con- contemplating retirement, she was petrified. She says, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It made me, it was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. Now, a big teller of whether something is an idol in our lives or not is if it was taken away or you don't get it. How would you feel? How would life go? Uh, And this can happen in the Christian world as well. And this can happen in church, where ministry or success in ministry can be a controlling idol. Now, you know, we may be able to think of stories from megachurches in recent years, where just the drive to be bigger, for more success, for more power and influence, to be better than all the other churches around, came at the expense of godly leadership. Uh, you could say, well, well, look at the fruit. Look at, look at, look at the good which happened. But it's only later where it's revealed, you know, the body count. You know, it's only later where you really get the stories of the hurt and who was burned by it all. And it's easy to pinpoint it on one person, but usually there's, you know, there's a surrounding network of people who were allowing things to go on because they also wanted a slice of the action, a slice of the fame. And it's not in megachurches, not just in megachurches where this can happen. It can work in smaller settings like ourselves. You know, where a jostling for position, a knocking of people down to make yourself look good, where, um, yeah, where you're reluctant to say things which needs to be said because of the impact it could have on yourself. And then we have money, another one of the big three, and I'm going to talk about this a bit more later. But money makes such a big promise, doesn't it? It makes such a big promise, it makes such a big claim. And this can be an idol in our hearts as well, whether we want lots of it, and we've got lots of it, whether we don't have lots of it, we can all believe the promises of money. Maybe these aren't huge issues for yourself, but actually, idols can be anything. They can be good things, that can be controlling influence on your life, they can dominate your life. It could be anything. Jesus said, wide, wide is the path that leads to destruction. Robert Mulholland, um, Mulholland, sorry, he wrote a book on discipleship. He says this, he goes, Our full self, having removed the roots of our identity, meaning, value and purpose from loving union with God, sinks those roots into multiple alternative soils where we seek to find our identity, meaning, value and purpose. Among such soils are our sexuality, our possessions, our status, our profession, our performances, our relationships, and then our woundedness, our resentments, our bitterness, our culture, our ethnicity, our place, our intellect, our education, and so on. 
Our full self has constructed a complex nexus of soils in which the roots of our very being are grounded. Sometimes being true to ourselves, in being true to ourselves, we actually fashion a false self. But it's in God, it's in God where we're meant to get our roots in and find our meaning, value and purpose. Like I say, in these, these idols, they can control us. They can be the things we centre our lives on. But we need to build our lives on the rock. Yeah, we need to build our lives on the gospel. Now, it's the gospel that promises and delivers value, meaning and purpose, whereas these counterfeits, they, they don't. They don't deliver. With the gospel, we get relationship with God. You get connection with him. And we get his power to live free from these controlling ideas. In 2 Peter, it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, through these, he has given us great and precious promises. So that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Jesus himself, he says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Complete contrast to the modern day gospel of living your own truth. The gospel brings life and life in its fullness. Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it in its fullness rather than being in bondage to these idols. And the gospel is also an introduction to discipleship. Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, then you are my disciple. And this is where we meet the challenge of discipleship. For we have the power to live a godly life. We can participate in the divine nature. We have freedom from controlling idols that dominate us and don't deliver what our hearts truly want. And we also have Jesus' teaching, divine insights on how to build our lives. Yet we find these difficult. G.K. Chesterton said, you know, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And Jesus asks difficult things of us. In a culture of self, in a culture of authenticity, Jesus asks us to deny the self. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. He continues, and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever wants to lose their life for me will find it. And this is a challenge of discipleship. Jesus tells the story of a rich, young ruler. And it's later on in Matthew 19. He goes, Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, this, this guy seems great in every way. Uh, I was wondering, what would he look like if, if he walked in here into our setting? You know? What would he look like? I mean, he'd be, he'd be a leader in the workplace, wouldn't he? A leader in the workplace, someone, you know, someone you respect, someone whose opinion you want on things. Um, he'd be wealthy, 
you know, great, he can fund the mission. He'd be godly, he's got his own house in order. Yeah? He's the type of person you want to have around dinner and then be invited back because he can probably cook a good meal as well. Yet Jesus spots the one thing, the one thing in his heart that he couldn't give up, the one idol that was controlling him. And he couldn't give it up, and he went away sad. Now, God may not speak to you about giving away everything, selling everything and giving it away. I've never met anyone who has done that. But he, he may speak to you about your giving, about tithing. He may speak to you about your spending. Maybe it's a success he will speak to you about. Maybe it's success he will speak to you about. But because he loves you, and because he, only he knows the idols in your heart, and he so desires for you to know his fullness of life, because of this, he will speak to you about it. Or there will be situations in your life which come about, you hit a wall, and you know God is putting his finger on something. And this is where we meet the challenge of discipleship. Because sometimes we can look around yeah, and see others who aren't following Jesus. And we can look at their lives and think, oh, they got a better life than me. they got an easier life than me. What of these promises? Um, the Psalms are brutally honest. Love the Psalms. And we've got Asaph. He's a psalmist. Okay, along with Davis, skilled psalmist, and he was a he was, you know, worship leader, led worship in Israel. And he says this in the 73rd Psalm, he goes, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Then he goes, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human life. Um, you skip a bit and then he goes on. This is what they like. They are always free of care. They go around amassing wealth. And he goes, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. Surely in vain. He's looking around. He's seeing around and seeing that people, they're not following God. They don't give two hoots about God. But look at their lives doing so well. They're doing so well. And, you know, this is, this is worship leader Asaph. And he's looking around and thinking, everyone else is doing well, but look at my life. I've got these body issues, you know, I've got, you know, it's not going so well. And we can do that. We can look around at everyone else's life, those who aren't following Jesus, and you think, you know, their, their lives aren't falling apart. Actually, their lives are going pretty well. It doesn't look like a storm is going to come down and knock through the house. You know, you can think, you know, maybe if I didn't give away some of my money, if I didn't give away my tithe, if I didn't give of my first fruits, you know, I could have that slightly better car. I could have that little bit more for my kids and a bit left over for myself. We could have that extra room sooner, that extension, get that property sooner. Well, maybe it is in the area of success. You know, you, you, you're being godly at work. Yeah? Because you're not grasping for things and knocking people down, you get overlooked for a promotion. Someone else is having that promotion. I was down the pub the other week with some, some friends trying to be a bit more missional beyond my family and sort of work colleagues down, down the pub. And one of 
them recently found himself a girlfriend. Uh, he got on Bumble, uh, which is a dating app for those of you who, who don't know about these things. Uh, and then after five dates, you know, it, it's time to get the hotel room. Now, this is modern dation. There's also hookup culture, which is something else. But this is modern dation. And met the couple just this week. And seemed really, really happy. Seemed quite pleased. You know, not following Jesus in the way they do their relationships, but seems to be going quite well for them. They seem to be quite happy. And then the questions come my way. So how about you? You know, how long has it been since you last dated someone? You know, how, how are those Christian dating apps going? Maybe you should get yourself on Bumble. You know, there's plenty. There's plenty in the local area. Get yourself on Bumble. Now, it just so happens that, that I'm, I'm fine at the moment, but, you know, previously, in other seasons of life, you know, you could look around and think, well, actually, why don't I get myself on Bumble? You know, it seems to move quite quicker. And then you can question the whole ethic of Christian dating and Christian, how we, we have done marriage and sex for the last 2,000 years. And we can do that. And these challenges can be a storm in themselves. You can see Asaph, he's clearly going through a storm, isn't he? He's clearly going through a storm on the inside. And some of the storms we experience, that they are on the inside. No one knows it's going on. It's all in your heart and all in your mind. If you have internal storms, you know, it's, it's that challenge of discipleship that can be an internal storm you can also have an internal storm of hurt past hurts you think you've dealt with it you think you've parked it and you deal with it later you think you're dealing with it well then all of a sudden it's there in your mind in your heart getting at you you can have internal storms of spiritual attack i remember when i took on a, a home group started pastoring a home group for the first time in my early 20s just just spiritual attack i was you know in terms of accusation accusation just spiritual attack no one on the outside knows it's going on. It's all happening on the inside. But we can also have external storms. Yeah? That troubling diagnosis. Relational strife. Threats to your income and your home. Sometimes these storms can reveal our idols, what we're really rooted in. And it's easy to take our minds off of Jesus. It's easier to give up on the road of discipleship. But there's also that ultimate storm that, as disciples, we will all experience when everyone bows a knee to Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. It's a sobering, it's a sobering statement. Paul helps us. He says in Colossians 2, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, Continue to live your life in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. And that's what it is. It's hollow. The philosophy of modern times is hollow. Which depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ... You have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. So do you want to hear how it turned out for Asaph? So in the same psalm, later on, he goes, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He's angry. Yet I am always with you. 
You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So worship leader Asaph got his, got his sights back on God, didn't he? Got his sights back on God. Got back on the road of discipleship. So... How do we do it? How do we build our house on the rock? Which can weather the storms of life, whether they're external or internal. How do we build our lives centred on Jesus and his teaching, rather than on shifting sand? And the answer is to dig deep. The answer is to dig deep. Dig deep foundations upon which you can build a spiritual home of your life. Put deep roots into rich, nutritious soil, rather than on the soils of self. And I was really encouraged when um, we were praying just beforehand. I think Flick gave a word about, um, you know, she saw a picture of you know, people putting their roots deep into soil, deep into soil. And then she had the picture of a tree growing up and they were s- surviving the storms of life and then later on producing great fruit. So I was really encouraged by that. God was speaking to us. So, I mean, dig deep. There's loads of areas we need to dig deep in. I want to talk about digging deep in prayer. I want to talk about digging deep in church community. But I'm going to focus on digging deep into the word. And I'm going to use words which we shy away from. Yeah, which we shouldn't, but we do shy away from. Words of authority, obedience, discipline. Okay, so stay with me on these. So Hebrews 4, 12, 13 says, For the word of God is alive and active. Now these words, what's in here... It's alive and active. It's not dead. It was written a long time ago, but it's written for you. It's written for you as a disciple of Jesus. They're sharper, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges even the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. So when you read this, and it reveals something in you, and you find this difficult, you need to ask, you know, is this an authority in my life? Is this an authority in life, or is another authority calling the shots? That's the path of discipleship. Obedience, you see, Jesus ties hearing the word with doing something about it. Hearing the word with doing something about it, with living it out. And that's building your life on the rock. To not live it out is building your life on the sand. James, another Bible writer, he agrees. He goes, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. James is such a such a in-your-face to the point book, um, I love it. I, I was recommended to read it when I was 18. I didn't read much of the Bible. And my, my student home group leader at the time said it's short. So I thought, yeah, I'll go for that. Little did I know how intense it is. But you've got to do something about it. Yeah? It really highlights the folly of not doing anything about it, to use a Bible word. The folly of not doing anything about it. Or not living it out. By doing this, you deceive yourselves. Not that you've been deceived, but you actually do it to yourself. You deceive yourself by not living it out. Now, if you find the Bible boring, I think you're not reading it right. Because this is a sharp sword, and it will dig into you, 
and it will reveal things about you. The attitudes of your heart, your secret motivations. And that could be a problem, can't it? Because then that puts the onus on us to do something about it. The ball is then in our court. I think sometimes that's why I can show away from reading it sometimes. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise men. You need to read the Bible like a disciple. You can be a, you could be a Bible scholar. You could be a theologian. You know so much about this, but not read it like a disciple. You've got to do something about it. Now, it's the other side of obedience that we, we, we sometimes experience the blessings and the fullness of what Christ has for us. You know, Psalm 119 says, Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Galatians, do not be deceived. A man reaps what he sows. God cannot be mocked. Whoever sows to please the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit, and every time you hear the words of Jesus and do something about them, you sow to the spirit will reap eternal life. Then another word, which we don't like, which is unpopular, which we need to make popular, is discipline. Now, we actually have to find time to read this. Time. Now, if a builder doesn't prioritise a building project, it won't get done, or it won't get done very well. There will be other projects which need his attention. He will have to do maintenance on other places. Other matters of life will crop up and demand his attention. His money will be apportioned elsewhere, leaving just the poor building materials for this project, and he will cut corners and do a poor job. The job will be poor, it will be an afterthought, it won't last long until you know, that starts coming undone. And the same is true of the spiritual house you build. Same is true of your spiritual life. Same is true of your life. Um, my problem can be is that sometimes I think I don't need this. Yeah, I think I know what it says already. I've read enough. I know what it says already. And when I go for a period where I've got a lot to think about, a lot to do, I neglect this. But I always need this. And when I do neglect it, that's when I find the weeds growing in my life. That's when the cracks start to appear. That's where my character can sometimes take a nosedive. We all think we have less time than everyone else. But someone, I was listening to a podcast today and he told me, we all have 24 hours. No one has 23 hours, no one has 25 hours. We all have the same amount of time. It all comes down to prioritisation. And what I found is that when I've prioritised this, reading and responding, I've walked in more freedom. My spiritual life has been healthier and I've felt more joy when I have been in the Word. And um, you need to read this for yourself as a disciple. Yeah? So I'm a big fan of podcasts. I listen to quite a lot of podcasts, but they're not a replacement. I like reading Christian books, but they're not a replacement for sitting down yourself and reading this. Um, so you don't need the latest sermon by John Tyson or the latest book by John Mark Comer or the next Instagram update from Christian Kane. They're all good. But you need this for yourself. Devotionals are fine, but at the end of the day, they're someone else's devotional life, really, aren't they? It's someone else's devotional life. We need to have our own. So before we move into, into communion, just go remember Jesus. 
So Jesus weathered the greatest storm so that we don't have to. Yeah, so in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, it was the cup of God's wrath, and he, he drank the cup of God's wrath. He prayed to God. He um, was sweating blood as he prayed it, and he prayed, yet not my will, but yours be done. Yet not my will, but yours be done. So he, he is our model of denying self. He's also our saviour. For he bore the sins of the whole world in his body. And by his blood, he has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. So that we can walk in freedom. So that we can know his power, that we can walk in freedom. And that we can live a life built on him and his teaching. Okay. Then we go into communion now. Thanks, everyone. Okay, should we uh, stand together? Can we have the uh, welcome team up? I think Stan served us really well this morning. Some really uh, challenging stuff in there. Um, let's just uh, come and take bread together. Take the bread and then take the wine Back to your seats and we, we drink the wine together. Um, Steve, trying to lead. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.